As a result of this bombing, Medicines Sans Frontier, they announced that they would be withdrawing from six hospitals in northern Yemen. Mm-hmm. And uh, in addition to that, there was another attack on a school and a neighborhood that resulted in the death of 19 people, mostly children. And Saudis do not seem to be budging. Obviously, the Saudi-led coalition has not achieved its declared goal of bringing the government of Mr. Hadi back to power in Yemen. And this military intervention was subsequently renamed Operation Restore Hope. They started by calling it Operation Decisive Storm. Right. And the renaming perhaps was the indicative of a failure of the Saudi regime and its partners in achieving their initial goals as a goal to weaken the Houthi-Saleh alliance, forcing them into negotiations and making concessions. I mean, I guess their thinking must be along those lines. But people who are suffering are, for the most part, non-combatants, or at least large numbers of non-combatants, not only in terms of the death toll, but in terms of, you know, again, the other deprivations, like not having electricity and therefore not having water and hospitals and schools being unavailable. And that seems to be what they're saying. But what I meant in terms of there doesn't seem to be an end game, maybe that wasn't specific enough. People who are much more refined in their military strategic analyses than I personally am have difficulty seeing how there's a kind of either a tactical, much less a strategic kind of plan to achieve the objective of restoring Hadi to power, knowing that he never had much popular support. I mean, the reason why he was the hand-picked vice president of Saleh was because he, he has no charisma, he has no particular following, not very good, for example, public speaking skills or other skills that would make him a strong leader. There's a, a more kind of cynical view, and again, without going so far as conspiracy theories, but they just want to dominate Yemen. And, you know, to some extent, they have in very many ways for a very long time. In fact, when Saleh came to power, I mean, everyone assumed that he was really kind of had been chosen by the rich kingdom to the north. And there are various ways in which Saudi policy towards Yemen has always been an effort to dominate the country. And also part of that was sort of spending a lot of money on Salafi mosques and movements and so forth in schools throughout the country. And that in turn was part of what prompted the Houthi sort of Zaidi revival, which was kind of an anti-Wahhabi movement to begin with. So, but I mean, you know, some of the things they're doing, I mean, another thing that happened recently is, and well, actually, I think they've bombed something like 600 or more mosques and also notable tombs, you know, saints' tombs from the early days of Islam. That's a special kind of strategy. These are not even necessarily Zaidi, that is to say Shia mosques and tombs. It's a kind of obliteration of history, which does not compute in terms of, again, some sort of strategic rationale. The U.S. and British governments have both been actively supporting the Saudi intervention by supplying arms and U.S. has been sharing intelligence with the Saudis in terms of determining which targets to attack. They have been resupplying the uh, Saudis' aircraft, which are involved in airstrikes, with fuel. Yeah, um, in air. Yes, um, and there has been such a silence on this issue, this sort of a hidden war. There's not much you can find in the U.S. media. Yeah, and I mean, that appears to be, well, two things, I think. One is, which we haven't mentioned, is the Saudi claim 
that the Houthis are an Iranian proxy. And the kind of standard narrative is that one reason why the United States is supporting Saudi Arabia in this is because Saudi Arabia was offended by the rapprochement and negotiations between Washington and Tehran over the the nuclear so-called deal. The evidence of Iranian support for the Houthis is very, very thin. It is, there's a couple things that are true. One is that Press TV, which is the Iranian propaganda outlet, uh, is very pro-Houthi. And another thing is that, oddly, the Houthis do use what is decidedly an Iranian slogan, which is death to America and death to Israel. And I don't know, actually, why they decided that that was a good slogan. What about this claim by Saudis that they have photographs showing that... I was just about to come to that. And John Kerry said that he saw those photographs. Right. Nobody has seen any photographs. There are nobody. I mean, I'm I'm on listservs with, like, you know, people who just spend their whole life looking for, you know, this kind of evidence. There are no photographs of any Iranian weapons have entered the public sphere. There's no photographs of Iranian people inside of Yemen. Somebody did an analysis of phone calls to see whether there's a lot of phone calls between Yemen and and Iran, and there was nothing found. There are no flights. There's a naval blockade to prevent any ships from coming in, and I may add the United States participates in that. So the claim is there. And, you know, you have some hints. Again, John Kerry just recently said somewhere in a in a news conference after his recent re- visit to Riyadh that he saw the photographs. Apparently, based on what they claim, this shows Iranian supply missiles being right. positioned along Saudi-Yemen right. border. Right. I and want to see them myself. <laughs> yes, I don't you know? blame you. I mean, you know, if they're there, then, you know, I mean, let's see them. And the other thing is, I mean, I, I think... It's clear that this is an excellent export market for American weapons. The Obama administration has may or approved the, the sale of an unprecedented value of, of American weapons to Saudi Arabia, specifically during the 16 months of this war. That's something that seems to benefit the arms makers, notably Boeing and and McDonnell Douglas, but others as well inside of the United States. As well as the British and French. And also the British. The British press is more now, there's a little bit more dissent in in the United States as well. The British press is, the Guardian in particular, but other parts of the British, BBC even, um, are more and more now reporting on this. And there, there have been some demonstrations in Britain against the transfer of weapons to Saudi Arabia for the purpose of bombing Yemen. Uh, Liberal Democrat MPs have called for suspension of arms sales to Saudi Arabia and Britain. And and the British Daily Guardian, the editorial, actually asked the British government to stop arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Actually, the New York Times said something similar. it, It was right after the Doctors Without Borders hospital was bombed. And they actually took their first kind of stand on that. But in general, you know, it just stays off of the radar screen. I mean, in in the U.S., even our public broadcasters, you would not know this war is going on. You mentioned earlier both the Islamic State and Al-Ghada, Ansar al-Sharia, also known as Al-Ghada in Arabian Peninsula. The group 
evidently is getting stronger and richer, this is the quote from Reuters, than any time in its 20 years history. And there's this argument that, as you mentioned earlier, that Saudi's bombing campaign has strengthened Al-Qaeda and Islamic State in the Arabian Peninsula. Do we know how people in Yemen perceive these bombings? Do they see United States being as guilty as the Saudis? Yeah, again, there's a regional difference. But certainly in in a lot of the northern two-thirds or thereabouts, it's common to say the Saudis-slash-American bombardment. One journalist recently, I was on the streets in Sana'a, the, still the capital, said there's anti-American graffiti everywhere. I mean, that was never the case before. And so Americans are widely seen among the population that's suffering the most from Saudi bombing. Because when the things like cluster bombs, for example, they're using cluster bombs, which are supposedly outlawed. And some of these things land and they don't explode. So you can frequently see the writing on the ordinance. And it says, made in USA. Even when you look at both the Clinton and Trump presidential campaigns, they have been totally silent on this issue despite their constant arguing over who would be better in stopping terrorism. And they do not see how this can actually help groups inside Yemen, such as Al-Qaeda and Islamic State. Without going so far as to say that's the intention, yes, the effect has been to create spaces, particularly in the South, where both Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State can operate freely. I mean, actually, Obama's last visit to Saudi Arabia, apparently he said something about, you know, we wish that you would do a little bit more against al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. And the Saudis did the following week, this is, I think, in April. Uh, the following week, they said, oh, you know, we've we've driven al-Qaeda forces out of in a particular town in southern Yemen. And once again, the evidence from on the ground didn't really support this. So at the very least, we can say that the Saudis have not been targeting those two groups that the United States considers to be the real enemy. This narrative that Saudis have of the events in Yemen and in the region in general, that they're creating this dichotomy, Sunni versus Shia, that must help also groups such as Al-Qaeda and Islamic State and Daesh in Yemen because they would see themselves as a force that is fighting against, against Shiite takeover by, the, by what they see as Houthis. Well, yes, that does. And the Houthis, you know, have kind of increasingly, because Saleh himself never really dealt in this kind of Sunni Shia, or in Yemen it's Zaidi Shafi'i. And the Zaidis are quite far away, actually, from the Twelvers in Iran, so that Iran never used to consider the Zaidis to be like true Shia. But the narrative has certainly hardened in Yemen over the past, well, more than 16 months, but especially 16 months. But see, the irony is that in in saying that they're bound and determined to drive the dastardly Shia out of Yemen and get rid of the Shia influence, in effect, they're siding with al-Qaeda and the Islamic State because they, of course, are Sunni. And not only Sunni, but, you know, kind of fairly close to the Salafi Wahhabi end of things, even though they're also anti-monarchy and therefore anti-kingdom of Saudi Arabia. But pushing the sectarian rhetoric 
is actually a way of strengthening al-Qaeda and and the Islamic State because their claim is that they are true Sunnis. The world does not actually evolve according to Saudi's narrative. This is not a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia and Yemen. No, because the Saudis don't have a proxy. The Saudis are directly intervening. I mean, proxy war would be like in Angola in the old days where the U.S. would support one faction and the Soviet Union would support the other faction. The Saudi narrative of a proxy war. But it's not a proxy war because it's a direct intervention. What their claim is that they are directly intervening against Iranian proxies. But again, the evidence that these guys are Iranian proxies is pretty thin. Also, just a thinly disguised military intervention by the richest country in the region and one of the richest countries in the world against the poorest country in the world and a country where, you know, they were trying to have a peaceful uprising in order to pursue goals like democracy and human rights, dignity and decency and proper standards of living. And so, you know, when you, if you step back and take the longer view, I mean, I, I do think there's a, a fruitful analysis suggesting that the Saudis are just trying to make sure that there are not successful popular uprisings. They were panicked over the um, popular uprisings in Egypt and Tunisia. But Yemen is on their their doorstep. That's their underbelly, 1100. That's their underbelly, 1100, and it's always yeah. been seen as such. So, I mean, making sure that there's not a successful popular uprising in Yemen, even if it means destroying the country, would seem, I think, you know, 10 years from now, that's the way we will look back at it. Saudis have gone as far as saying that the new Saudi doctrine is to have an Arab world free of any Iranian influence. Mm-hmm. And their rhetoric goes on and on. How do you think the events in Syria the way they have evolved, shifting the balance of military forces in favor of the Assad regime. How has that shaped what may come out of Yemen and its conflict and turmoil? Well, I think the fear on the part of of Yemenis who are watching things carefully, and to some extent already the evidence is that as it seems that Daesh or the Islamic State are are losing territory in Syria, and it remains to be seen how that's going to play out in Iraq, but that they will increasingly take the battle to Yemen. I mean, it already seems that that's happening. And there's reason to think that if indeed, you know, the outside regime starts to regain the decisive upper hand in Syria, that those fighters, some of whom are Syrian, but some of them are from, I don't know, Scotland and Somalia and all sorts of places, you know, foreign fighters, that they'll find a way to get to Yemen. And there's also a sense, and I think this is a legitimate fear on the part of the Saudis, although, again, I, I think they could be a lot smarter in terms of their strategic ways of dealing with it, but of them being encircled by the fighting. But, you know, I mean, they haven't done that much in either in Syria, or directly in Iraq, where the evidence and risk of Iranian influence is much more palatable. I mean, it's much more direct, it's much more obvious, but they haven't involved themselves there. Instead, they've taken aim at a defenseless country with, you know, no strong, really, relationships to Western countries. And and then just incidentally, it's also refugees can't get out of there to get to Europe. Ever since the Saudis spearheaded this military intervention in Yemen in March of 2015, which is 
basically overseen by Saudi Defense Minister and Deputy Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. There have been reports of rifts within the Saudi ruling bloc over its policy in Yemen. How credible are such reports? Do we have any evidence of that? Yeah, knowing what's going on inside of the the upper echelons of the, of the House of Saud, you know, is is a variant on Sovietology, with the exception that at least the Soviets <laughs> would occasionally pose for public <laughs> photographs, so you could you know sort of circle who was in the photograph. But I think logic would suggest that, of course, there are thinking people inside of the Prince Club. And, of course, there are also factions within uh, the House of Saud, other people angling for who's going to gain power, you know, people certainly feeling that uh, Mohammed bin Salman has been promoted way beyond his age, his competency, his seniority, any of it. So I think there's kind of banal political competition and jealousy within the royal family. And at the same time, I think there are also some people just thinking that this is really a disastrous undertaking. Yeah, with no, very, very little prospect of of a really positive outcome. And very expensive, by the way, at a time when oil prices are very low. The amount being spent on this futile war is something that, again, I think thinking Saudis would naturally be worried about. Sheila, you mentioned the attempts by Saudis to recruit people from the southern part of Yemen to protect their borders against Mm -hmm. the Houthis. Presumably, this is a coalition of nine countries involved in this military intervention in Yemen. Is that an indication of cracks within the Saudis-led bloc of nine countries? Well, I mean, the Emiratis at one point had actual soldiers on the ground. And of course, that was a pretty big deal for the Emiratis because they had never sent foot soldiers anywhere. And then a number of them were killed. And of course, they were hailed as heroes. But after that, the Emiratis became increasingly reluctant to participate, at least in a ground force. And there are very few Saudis on the ground. Again, we have very low death tolls, hardly any that I know of. But Egyptians and uh, Moroccans are not exactly lining up to go fight a war on behalf of Saudi Arabia. So, I mean, it's it's close to being a mercenary force to the extent that there are forces on the ground. And what we see, basically, is that it's mainly an air war. And this is what, you know, generals in, in the Pentagon would say. You know, it's really hard to win an air war using air, air power alone, which is why, as I said earlier, you know, it's difficult to see this as being well thought through in a strategic way. So the cracks are, I think, that at the beginning, the Saudi expectation was that, you know, they would provide the air power and the money, but other countries would provide the bodies, the fighting, the soldiers. Hmm. But the other countries don't really want to do that. They want to be part of the coalition enough, especially in the case of Egypt, to get some additional financial support from the Gulf countries, the oil exporters. But... They don't want their guys coming home in body bags. Actually, Egypt did that once before, and it didn't work out very well. That was in, you know, the 1960s. That brings me to the next question, which is Yemen has witnessed in the past. Yemen experienced a fairly long civil war from 1962 and 1970, which involved some foreign forces like Egyptian forces that you mentioned. 
Do you see this conflict taking a similar shape and becoming a prolonged civil war, such as what we experience in Lebanon, for instance, because there are so many different factions involved? Two comments. The first one, actually, I mean, it's interesting that we've now gone back to the intervention in between 1962 and whether you count 68 or 69 or 70, because that was Egyptian forces, ground forces, intervening on the side of the Republican government, which had deposed the Zaidi imam. And it's, of course, the Houthis are sort of loosely you know, have a legacy of the Zaidi imam. Sure. At the time, the Saudis supported the Zaidi imam. In other words, then it was a question of royalists versus republicans, and they supported the royalists, but the royalists were Zaidis. So there's an interesting contrast now where the Saudis are intervening specifically against the Zaidis because they've construed this not as republican versus royalist, but rather as Sunni versus Shia. So there's that irony there. You know, the the analogy to Lebanon or even Syria, again, yes, I think there's, you know, factions are getting harder or hardening. And certainly, again, Al-Qaeda and and the Islamic State, it's getting worse. And why somebody gave Salah immunity to begin with and left him running around is, is clearly, you know, was a very historic mistake. But the main problem now is the air war by an intervening power. And that's not the same as Lebanon. And it's not primarily the same as Syria. It's, in fact, closer to Iraq, where, you Hmm. know, the United States, again, with more boots on the ground, certainly, but, I mean, you know, basically invaded and attempted to subdue a whole country using a a fair amount of air power. And then what happened was that the society collapsed. And I think that is probably the better analogy, that we're now at a stage of societal collapse, sectarian tensions where none existed before, tightly communities kind of coming together, in part because of the lack of transport and communications, but just community self-defense, and a much larger societal collapse. So in some ways, Lebanon almost is like a scenario to be hoped for, not because of 15 years of civil war, but because the country has now kind of has recovered and is a pleasant place to live. Whereas, you know, looking at conditions in Yemen now, it's it's really difficult to imagine that it will recover and become a nice place to live again, which it used to be. What has been the impact of present strife and turmoil in Yemen on the tribal system and tribal ties? The tribal system in general by Islam is seen as an impediment to state building and formation of national identity. Conversely, one can argue that in times of crisis and increasing conflicts, Yemen's tribal orders have contributed to a fairly sustainable balance of power and stability. Okay, so two points. One is the tribal system in Yemen has historically had actually very strong mediation and negotiation mechanisms that although so everybody was armed, the tribes are all heavily armed, but they had a very strong system for mediation and negotiation such that tribal wars almost never really broke out. So I'm not sure that tribalism itself is a problem. The Saleh administration, again, three decades, played tribal identities and and affinities and so forth very, frankly, skillfully. 
So he would appoint the sheikhs of any major tribe, either to a military command or to a high post in government, and he would provide subsidies through the sheikhs uh, to, you know, either buy weapons or provide other goods and services to the tribes in the name of the tribes. And so some of what we see in terms of his ability to get anyone to fight on his side, which is remarkable because, again, there was this nationwide protest against him. But that has got to be because he still has a lot of money at his disposal and he's able to use tribal connections to keep at least some support. But again, the other side of, of the support that he's managed to regain, which he really has now regained a fair amount of support, is basically antipathy towards the bombs that are falling from the sky. I'm not one who sees um, tribalism per se as a very strong determining factor. And Sheila, just looking into the future, Herak or the Southern Movement in Yemen which, you know, aims to restore independence to southern Yemen, or at least some sort of autonomy, was very active and strong till last year. And they would use strong terms to describe northern domination, as they call it. Do you see if this conflict goes on for a long time that the uh, southerners may try to actually claim independence? Oh, yeah, 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 I do. I mean, I think the, the only alternative is, I think, one rumor is that particularly the eastern part of the south, which would be the Hadramaut and or Shabwa, which coincidentally, of course, are the places where the oil is. One scenario, and it's a scenario, it's not my prediction, it's just one of many scenarios, is that they would actually just become part of Saudi Arabia. But for the other part of the south, so Aden and Abiyan and, and the sort of southwestern part, which is the more populous part of the South, I think that the overwhelming majority of people have no intention of being part of the Republic of Yemen. The unity is is a fairly new phenomenon for the two parts. The unity, it occurred in 1990. It made really good sense at the time. I mean, it was a Cold War border. The Cold War was over. Oil was discovered. It was pretty much all right along the border. The things that had been dividing them, the guys who had been dividing them and so forth, were mostly dead. The Southern People's Democratic Republic had imploded in 1986. They basically killed each other off, the whole leading cadre. There were a lot of good reasons for unity. I was there right on the eve of unity. And I was figuring that Saleh was going to fall. The tribes seemed to be mobilizing against him. People in the cities seemed to be, you know, were very restive against him. And for him, unity was a stroke of genius because it sort of restored some sense of, of hope and so forth. And for the Southerners also, I think at the time, it seemed like a pretty good idea. But what happened was that he spoiled it by trying to obliterate any vestiges of, for example, the Southern Civil Service, so throwing a lot of people out of jobs. And then both his, the leadership of the North and the leadership of the South behaved very badly. I was there during that period, and there was a national dialogue and, again, nationwide demonstrations, no to war, yes to a, a kind of constitutional convention of some sort. But the military leaders, both North and South, decided that they would rather fight 
And so there was a war in 1994. It didn't last very long. It wasn't all that bloody, but it resulted in the southern leadership basically fleeing the country. And then Salah's military and also civilian apparatus kind of basically, as the southerners see it, occupied them and, you know, seized land. They burned down the beer factory. They burned down the civil service administration. Again, they confiscated a lot of lands. They moved in. He appointed northerners to all the key positions. So it really felt like an occupation to many people, and they grew increasingly embittered. And now that he's back on the scene fighting alongside the Houthis, I mean, they see Salah Houthi configuration as just an extension of that occupation that occurred in, in 1994. And finally, Sheila, I asked you this question in our last interview, and I'm going to ask you again. In 2011, not long after the uprising against Mr. Saleh's 33-year rule began in Yemen, in an article titled Yemen's Existential Crisis published on Merip Online, you wrote, Yemen is now in political limbo and not far from hell. Yeah. And that was five years ago. I'm sure that you agree that Yemen looks more frightening today. So where do you see Yemen heading now? What is the solution to this conflict? Well, I am very, very pessimistic. It's, I mean, it seems to me that I saw that the quote that I, you just quoted me in, not that long ago, and I thought, yeah, now we are in hell. This week, things have gotten much worse. But in terms of the solution, I mean, I think there can be one, they would both be difficult, but there are one of two possibilities for a solution. One is to let the Yemenis, the various factions and so forth and so on, do their own negotiations, which is not what's been happening. What's been happening is that it's under the auspices of the Gulf Cooperation Council, who, again, are not neutral mediators. They're participants in the fight. And so leaving it to the Yemenis is, would probably be a little bit messy, but there's a possibility there of some kind of national dialogue reaching a, a fruition. The other possibility is for there to be serious U.N. intervention not intervention in a military sense, but a proactive diplomacy led by the United Nations, and that's been thwarted. The United Nations Security Council has basically sided with the Saudis. There have been efforts to declare Saudi war crimes in the in the UN. Ban Ki-moon tried to come out with a statement. Saudi Arabia threatened to pull all of its funding out of the UN. The United States has, of course, supported Saudi Arabia in the Security Council. So that has been anything but a genuine diplomatic effort. So either a genuine, genuine international diplomatic effort that recognizes that the Saudis are a party and therefore need to be part of the negotiations, but also be willing to accept some kind of compromises, or let the Yemenis do it. But what we have in between, which is the Gulf Cooperation Council managing the transition, and then the Gulf Cooperation Council intervening militarily, and then the Gulf Cooperation Council sponsoring the negotiations, this is just completely untenable and unreasonable and unwise. Somebody that I was reading the other day said, you know, this is another nail in the coffin of the United Nations. The invasion of Iraq was a big nail, but this is maybe the final nail. Sheila Carapico is a professor of political science and international studies 
at the University of Richmond and the editor of the new book, Arabia Incognita, Dispatches from Yemen and the Gulf. She spoke with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa's Shahram Aghamir. Our theme music is Radio City by Lebanese oud player and composer Rabih Abu Khalil. For a status, I am Malihe Razazan and thanks for listening.